Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like me who love Northern Ireland and believe we have a better story to tell. A massive thanks to all of you listening who have already joined the Producers Club, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, Gavin Wall, Peter Dixon, and of course, the Orma Baths team. Today's episode wouldn't exist without you. To find out more about how you can support independent ad-free media, get invitations to live podcasts, and submit questions to our guests, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Thanks so much, and really hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, folks. What's the crack? Uh, Matthew Thompson here, and welcome to Best of Belfast, the podcast that celebrates North... Celebrates? It celebrates. Uh, Too many celebrations, you know. Christmas, what can you do? Happy New Year. Uh, Yeah, we are the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. Uh, Today's guest is no exception because he is an incredible person. Um, Probably wouldn't say that about himself, but that's the beauty of doing these intros by yourself um, in the basement in Germany where we have been spending Christmas uh, because you can say all these lovely things about your guests and they can't do that Northern Irish thing where they jump in and say, oh, no, 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 not me, not me. Oh, no, I'll cut yourself on. Da, 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 da. Noel McKee was a firefighter in North Belfast for 32 years before training as a counsellor and launching his own practice in 2004. Since then, he's logged a colossal 6,500 supervised counselling hours of one-to-one therapy and has become a registered member of the British Association. (laughs) Man, what is up with my annunciation today? The British Association of Counsellors and Psychotherapists. His company, East Antrim Counselling, serves the Northern Trust, local health centres and actively engages within the community through talks in schools, public lectures and charity events. In today's episode, we talk all about what being a firefighter taught Noel about trauma and loss, the role that generational trauma plays in our Northern Irish culture today, how we can take care of our own mental health and the greatest insights that Noel has discovered along the way. So yeah, really hope you enjoy it. I'll not take up any more of your time and we'll jump straight into today's episode with Noel Key, which I have left uncut. You hear the, um, the, the sound check questions about breakfast and food and all because you know what? I think it's all good and I, I hope you enjoy every single bit of it. Cheers. So you're no stranger to mics, I'm sure, but... Yeah, bring it over. These bad boys here, you're talking about a fist away from your mouth, so feel free to get comfy, feel free to put your feet up, literally, whatever you you need to do. Uh, I might might just... Do your thing. I might lounge. Yes, lounge. (laughs) I'll just get a wee level check here. Um, Are you a breakfast man? I'm a breakfast, lunch, dinner. Yeah, you're you're three square. (laughs) (laughs) I'd be quite content with that, yeah. A person who loves his food. Mate, it's uh, one of life's little pleasures, isn't it? I, I just, uh, food, uh, for me, Gillian would, would say it's wasted on me because it's, <laughs> it's kind of quantity over quality. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd be quite happy with a fish supper in my hand as, as opposed to eating anywhere fancy. Sure, I, yeah. I, I just get that, that lovely satisfying feeling of healthy, basic 
simple grub. Totally. There's a there's a wee cafe in Whitehead that does a uh, strangely enough an all year round winter warmer oh, they call it. Yes. So it's it's a big feed of champ with uh, onion gravy and yeah. you can either have sausages, veggie sausages or bacon with it <laughs> and then underneath it all there's a, a big portion of cabbage. Brilliant. So you're just looking at that going that's quality. Mate, there's you know? something about <laughs> cabbage that touches your bones on like an ethereal level. Isn't it just? It's something just so earthy. You just feel it. It just warms you. There's something, you see when you get cabbage and you boil it up, stick it in the pan, <laughs> fry it up, and then if you're frying anything else with it, like the likes of the bacon or anything, yeah. it, this, this is artery hardening recipes <laughs> here, you know, so... Uh, you, you pour that over the top of the, oh. the cabbage with a bit of smoked bacon and a couple of pine nuts. That's that'll do. The pine nuts is a new thing for me. I have to check that out. Actually. Oh, well, you do the same. You can do the same with Brussels sprouts. Easy now. You mentioned the you mentioned the sprout word. <laughs> but you can do the same with Brussels sprouts. Boil them, fry them up in a, in a, a nice bit of oil with some smoked bacon, yeah. really closely chopped up with it. Oh man! And then a couple of pine nuts just in round it. It is. It there is, is nice. something so comforting about food, and especially these colder wee months. Like I don't know what it is. Just so oh. Yeah, on a on a day today that's cold, wet and windy outside and it's it's difficult, especially maybe it's a cultural thing, it's quite a difficult thing to sit down to a to a tossed salad, <laughs> you know, with a slice of avocado. Absolutely. You know, you, you kinda of look at that and go I don't know, I think either a bowl of soup, a Belfast bab, <laughs> or a, you know, maybe an old pasty supper, yeah. just, to, just yeah. to warm your cockles yeah. up for a bit. And that, that's the thing, like not to disregard you know, the incredible fine dining, exquisite food that does come from here, but generally speaking, I would say culturally, most of us do fall into that quantity over quality. You know, if you, you go out and you go to a restaurant in Northern Ireland, the, the most uh, heretical uh, criticism someone could give oh the portions were so small weren't they <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there was one occasion I can't remember years ago it was, uh, I rarely go to these fancy restaurants and went to uh, it, it was almost by mistake you know you're going in and you get this great description you know, yeah. think, wow this looks this looks pretty good mm-hmm. and and it really was one of those eh, voila moments you know <laughs> and, and in my inner voice was going Seriously, big lad? You know, <laughs> is there bread with this? You know, is, is there something? You know, is there a plain loaf hail that I can bulk this up with? <laughs> oh, we've got this and we've got this and we've got this. And I said, I know, but where's the chips? Oh, no. You know, that, that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. So, like, um, the place where I usually start, uh, aside from, uh, you know, food, which is always a great place, uh, do you have a first memory? Oh, boy. Uh, first memories. <laughs> Memory at this stage in my life is, 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 is incredibly short term. I, I, I struggle to remember people's names that I've known for years. But yeah, far away memories are still pretty sharp with me. First memories are probably uh, growing up in a, in a very, very busy house. There were, uh, this, was, this doesn't rarely happen anymore. There were 10 of us, seven boys, three girls. And I was uh, ninth. Wow. I'm nine out of ten. I was the seventh boy and a younger sister below me. The people um, who love you today will still say you're nine out of ten, don't worry. Nine out of ten, yeah. <laughs> I'll take that, Matt. I'll, I'll take everybody up. Never thought of it that before, but I'll take it, yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 it was very busy. And I, it's just strange that memories, you know, somebody saying, you know, having a look at the primary school across the way, saying you're going there next year. 
know, I could remember little things like that. But generally, it was just, it was probably lost in chaos. Mm. You, you were kind of lost in it all. Yeah. Um, does, does anybody, it was almost like a head count. Yeah. And there's everybody here, right? Did everybody get fed? Yeah. Okay, right. Is there a bed for everyone? Yeah. I think so. Um, there's three in that one. There, there's a couple in that one. Regimented? Uh, regimented. My 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 mum and dad are both still alive. Dad's ninety four, mum's ninety. Um, I, I take it it's the activity of bringing up a large family that, 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 that's <laughs> yeah. given them longevity. And they worked magic. They they performed various forms of magic. Uh, it, it, I'm not being disrespectful to my mum and dad saying we grew up in a, a very difficult house because of of there was no money, and and I and I mean real kind of difficulties where mum worked her magic food wise where a leftover of something became potato bread mm. or a leftover of something went into some form of soup uh, but there was always porridge in the morning you yeah. always had this and it, and it, and it was like uh, I suppose it was like a, a, a campsite at, at yeah. a BB or a scout thing yeah. you know, every single morning My there was goodness. this massive big bowl of porridge so you kind of came in, you got your yeah. breakfast, and you shuffled off. Yeah. Rural, urban, where were you? Well, it's all Whitehead. I was born Whitehead. Bred, born bred Whitehead. Nice. So whenever we moved to Whitehead, the, we moved into the, uh, it's a big house, and it must have been one hell of a shock for the neighbours whenever, uh, at that stage, it was a family of eight coming from Dundonald. My moved, Moving down to Whitehead. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, of course, we didn't know any different. I was born then in, in Larne Hospital, come home to Whitehead, and then five years later, my wee sister was born. I suppose that's one of one of the the early memories too, coming home from P one, knowing that there was another person that arrived, and not really getting it. <laughs> but I remember I only heard this a few few days ago. Wherever, whenever we moved to Whitehead, it was quite close to the chapel, mm-hmm. and of course, whenever we arrived with eight kids. It was kind of associated, you know, that, well, we'll nip over and moved close to a chapel that we'll, we'll nip over to the, the chapel. Yeah. And the guy that said this only told me this a couple of years ago. He says they were all waiting, as, as you did in 19, I think it was 64, we moved down. And uh, we're, Dad was taking us to church en masse. And we we were walking past, and everyone expected us to turn left and walk into the chapel. And, and we kept walking on down the road <laughs> towards the Presbyterian Church. And this guy whispered, he says, "My he says that's one Randy Protestant." <laughs> so good. Uh, kind of shocked them all. Yeah, know, yeah, just yeah. Just kind of shocked yeah. them all. But it was re- it was regimented as in Dad was disciplinarian. Like he yeah. he did not suffer anything. But looking back as a as an older person now, you could see the pressure mm. that was under the, in the whole family. You know, yeah. his main worries every day was to provide food. There was no there's no benefits. There was no mm. apart from child child benefit was the only thing mm-hmm. that we took. Uh, we qualified for free school meals, but he never took them. And if and free school meals then was a different color ticket. Mm. So you were called up at a different time in school. So you went up and you paid your dinner money and then yeah. you come home or you sat back to your desk. And then there was this almost 
and now anyone yes. qualifying for free school meals, which yeah, was yeah, a white yeah. ticket. Yeah. And you had to go up separately for it. You know, it was bonkers. So I think there was part of that in it, but he just would never take never What do you do for work? Help. What did dad do? Dad worked and he, he ran, it was like, um, it was wholesale hardware goods. Wow. So it was paint and brushes and mops and, and brush shafts and, and all that kind of stuff, polyfiller, all the stuff. We, so he yeah, supplied yeah. to the shops. So we had a wee store out the, out the back where he kept everything and then every morning he'd get into his, uh, it was a wee calmer van to start with, it was a wee calmer and it had a sliding door and he used to fill it every morning and then he would go all around the country. Wow. Uh, he, everywhere that he could find business to, to, to drop this stuff off to. And then in 1980, he progressed to a Ford Transit, and we thought we were made. <laughs> he bought a Ford Transit. Look at this. Brilliant. But uh, he, he went all over the place, and, and he, he put some hours in, you know, just and every day, you know, he would come home, and there would be something broken, or the glass front would fire, get put in, because we'd been playing cricket in the back room, <laughs> or there'd been a football through a window, or somebody fought with somebody else, and yeah. you can only imagine what he must have thought. Oh, what am I coming home to today? Yeah. And mum existed in this, and still does exist in this wonderful world of of faith, where it's okay, everything's going to be all right, mm. and she she is remains to this day the most optimistic, beautiful human being. She's one of the she's one of the nicest human beings I have ever encountered in my life and, and she is a lesson to, yeah. to everyone yeah. what she did and how she went about it yeah. you know, there were no OMG moments in her world it yeah. was just get up get on with it Wow. I remember in P7 when her dad her, my granda her dad died he'd been ill for quite a while and uh, he had died that night and she had to get up the next morning and get the porridge on and get everybody out to, at that stage, work and mm. various stages of school. So there was no no opportunity yeah. to, to grieve. Yeah. And I remember coming into the kitchen and she was sta- standing, stirring the porridge in floods of tears. <sighs> but it had to be done. It's crazy. She, just, she knew she had to get up and yeah. get on with it. So let's time travel then. Why fireman? Uh, my farming. I I went through uh, primary school, then went into secondary school. After that, kind of drifted along. At sixteen, I wanted to join the RAF. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was really into it. I, I'd even got my um, my pass to go up the Aldergrove for the wow. day to, to have a look round. But could I get my Maz O level at the time? My ah, Maz GCSE. Man, those sneaky Maz. Oh boy, could I get the hang of it? My teacher wasn't the greatest, but I, I can't blame it all on him. But it it was just something that didn't compute. And without Maz, the doors wouldn't open. Mm. And and that's the basic requirements. I got they wanted Maz and physics as basics, and I got my physics okay, and I got. A few other O levels, but could I get that Mars? And I ended up resetting it five times. Oh no! Honestly, I was, That's I was nineteen and I was still <laughs> trying to get my Mars, and I never did. I never did. I got um, three D's and two E's. I sat it five times, three D's and two E's, and I just well, this isn't meant to be. Yeah. So I wasn't going in for that. Uh, I, I got I, I drifted from O level and the A level because 
well, what else will I do? Sure. You know, and my career's advice was, are you coming back or not? Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought, well, okay then, because mates are going back, so I'll go back. Yeah. yeah. And at that stage, there was the choices of joining the RUC, joining uh, armed forces, joining the present service, or then eventually into some form of emergency services. Mm. And just out of the blue, the, the February of uh, my A-level year, and the, and the old telegraph on Thursday night, you had the jobs on a Thursday night, and, and there was a wee, just a pretty insignificant advert for the Northern Iron Fire Brigade. Brilliant. And I looked at it and I thought, I might give that a go. <laughs> <laughs> because there was, there was nothing coming out of my A-levels. Yeah. I knew I was going to get nothing from it, and, and I really didn't want to be there. And I, I applied, and it took a full year to get in. There was wow. loads and loads. There were 6,800 people applied for it, and there was 24 jobs. So you just you went through stage by stage by stage. But I was quite fortunate because I was young, I was fit. Mm. I was still reasonably switched on because I was still at school. So there was mm-hmm. like a, a mass level, an English level that you had to pass. It was, it was fairly stringent stuff. Yeah. And just... I, I put all my eggs in that basket. I, yeah. I just hung out all hope for it. Yeah. And I was going throughout that year of 80, 85, 86. It was throughout that year. It was just constant, yeah. you know, yeah. test and test and test. And at each stage, you're waiting for the envelope to come through. And you're successfully through that next stage. Then I got the right year, you're through to medical. And in December, I got a letter saying you're starting in April. Oh, and I thought, right, that's great. Uh, that, that gives me a target. Then the phone rang in December, and it said, uh, uh, this is the fire service here. We're wanting you to come in on the 12th of January instead of April. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, dead on, dead on. Who is this? Yeah. yeah. Honestly, we, uh, we we need you to come in. Wow. And it, yeah. Which one of these mates is winding me up? Yeah. I know you all know, and you're just taking the mic. Yeah. You're going to embarrass me by making me stand and he says, uh, this is Divisional Officer Brown. Oh, he pulls out that car. <laughs> and, uh, oh, Divisional Officer. Whoa. And it was one of those being nervous laughs. Oh, right. Oh, oh sorry, sorry. I thought, <laughs> thought, thought, thought you were, um, uh, thought you were uh, one of my uh, uh, friends taking a Mickey. Yeah. He says, yeah, can you? And in fact, it, I think it actually was, it, it was January. It was the start of January. So it, it gave me like a week's notice. Crazy. And then the 12th of January, I was standing there with, 23 other agents looking around each other going <laughs> wonder what's going to happen here yeah you know so and then next thing you know 32 years 32 years just goes by you know just with uh, uh, fairly quick I remember what, was it fast would you say it was fast it was I. It, it was looking back it almost seems now like well what happened there because that was I left two and a half years ago and it was like well what happened what was that all about I have not missed it in any way. I have not regretted leaving in any way. The time yeah. was right for yeah. me to go. It was that kind of dinosaur feeling. You know, I, mm. I really, I'm, I'm not part of this. Mm. You know, I'm the old, the old guard. Whenever I joined, the, the, the old experienced men were really looked up to mm-hmm. and respected. And they were really well looked after. Mm-hmm. And whenever I became into that position, it was like, Who's, who's the old kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and I thought, um, I don't think I fit. I'm not sure if I fit here anymore. Yeah, and I had I had stuff to do. Sure, you know, and I, I wanted to go and do that. So Absolutely. Thirty two years were great. You know, there were 
there were some particularly challenging times, mm-hmm. and 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 I mean by that people I worked with, not the situations mm-hmm. I get into, because I probably experienced more trauma working with difficult people. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be very diplomatic here, sure. you know, dealing with very difficult people, yeah, and uh, and and a bullying culture at times. Yeah. You know, it was it was quite yeah. it was quite difficult. So, you know, I am a complete outsider. Like, I've never been a fireman. I don't know anything about the fire brigade locally. My, I was in, lived in New York for three years. So the, I would say the most I know about the fire department is the FDNY, which mm-hmm. makes has no context for this conversation. Other than from that outside perspective, looking in, it does seem to be a very hyper-masculine sort of environment. And I just am curious... Like, what was it like then to go from that into something like counselling? I I started training for counselling in, in the early two thousands. During the, the 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 late eighties and nineties, whenever I was in the fire brigade, I kind of started to get a reputation for confidentiality, mm. and that is not something that is in, in abundance within mm-hmm. uh, the service. You know, it's a, here. Don't be saying, but you know, yeah, pass yeah, that yeah, on. Yeah, but yeah. don't be saying, but and all of a sudden it's away and yeah. gone. But there were certain situations where I was able to help maybe guide and comfort along the way. And that there are skills that I had had right through. I, I knew I had those kind of skills right throughout school. And uh, I was putting those into good use. You know, Just the ability to listen, the ability to connect and the ability to just be with someone. Mm. And at the time, I was volunteering with Carrick Gateway Club. So it's a, it was a, a weekly meeting for, for young adults who have different forms of difficulties within their lives, uh, uh, mental and physical. And that was my grounding. Every Wednesday, you know, you would go and you, you would just really connect with these guys and have a lot of fun, a lot of crack, and, and a, again, great connection. But it was a Wednesday night. And the counselling training, the night class, was always a Wednesday night. <sighs> So year after year, I put it off. I'll do one more year at the Gateway. I'll do one more year. I don't want to leave because, mm. you know, I, and then eventually early 2000s, I just said, like, I, I, I need to go and get some training in mm. this because no matter how uh, compassionate and empathic you are, you still need that very extra training to, just to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> uh, uh, introductory course, it was a 15-week introductory course to counselling in 2004, I think it was. And I went up to NRC, which is Newton Abbey Tech, as I would have known it as, and I signed up for the course for 15 weeks. And I was so close to turning away. I had uh, a toddler and a baby at that stage, and it meant leaving Jill on a Wednesday night for a couple of hours. And this was on top of two night shifts. So mm. there were going to be three nights a week where I wouldn't be about for the bath time, bedtime routine. Yeah, yeah. I'm very conscious of that. And I remember walking in, just about to walk out the door. And I said, Jill, look, I can stop this. I, I don't need to do this. And I can stay here. She says, no, go. Give it a go. And I drove up to the gates of NRC. And this is 20 years after any form of education where the grey matter had ground probably to a bit of a halt. <laughs> it's a bit like the Tin Man of Wizard of Oz. You know, we just need a bit of oil in to get him, get him going again. And I, I stood at the... I, I drove up and I, and I got out of my car and I was just about to get back into it again because I was talking myself out of it. Mm. I thought, what are you doing? Like, what on earth are you doing? 
And I said, no, just go, just go to the front door. And I got, I got the front door and there's all these students and everybody running about. And I thought, God, just go back to your car, catch your cell phone. Mm-hmm. And a security guy says, you all right, son? And I said, um, I've got this class here. And he said, ah, come on. Sure, it's the first floor and it's on right here. And I think if it wasn't kind of for him, I, I, I may well, I'm not sure what I would have done, but there's mm. a fair chance I could have turned and, and walked away. But he kind of got me. I thought, oh, I have to go now. Yeah. And I went into the class with 15, 16 other uh, mature uh, people. And we all sat, and I was sitting going, I am out of my depth. I'm out of my depth. They all know more than I do. Mm-hmm. They're more switched on than I am. They're more capable. They're more academic. They're going to be far better at this than I am. And the tutor came in, and, of course, coming from – uh, secondary school I thought it was going to be something similar and he just sat down and says hello my name's Victor and nice to see you all here and here's a wee bit about myself and sure tell me a wee bit about yourselves and it came to me and I said look I just want to say that I don't think I belong here I, I'm looking around me going I'm not sure whether this is for me mm. I think I'm out of my depth and whenever I said that the rest of the class you could see all their shoulders dropping and going thank God you said that because <laughs> we're all thinking the same thing yeah, yeah, yeah. and at that stage I thought I'm going to stay Yeah. so did the introductory did the certificate then there was a three year advanced diploma course and this is while uh, I was working and another job I was painting and decorating on top of that to make the wages up so I was working two jobs and doing a, a course whenever it got to the advanced diploma stage it was fairly it started to get a wee bit more intense. Mm. But I was able to use those skills that I was learning as, as I went along. And I was able to recognise all the stuff that I should have been doing and all the bits, you know, a bit cringeworthy going, oh, no, why did I say that? that, that sure, stage, yeah. No, I know better. Yeah. So I was able to just do, to be able to bring that in and in, to work and to use the empathy whenever we were at different uh, uh, different scenes so the the reason I, I stayed in the fire brigade as a firefighter. Mm-hmm. Firstly, it was a fireman. Then it became a firefighter, and I stayed in that in that world uh, because I could have taken promotion, mm-hmm. but I wanted to stay with my family. Once you get to a certain rank, you have to you have to commit to an awful lot more time, and you're away from your family enough. And and then sometimes you'd be posted somewhere else, and you'd mm. have to sleep away. And yeah. and I didn't want all that. But also, I love the skin on skin contact with people. Mm-hmm. So you're going to a car crash where somebody's fairly traumatized and and, and, and trapped, and you can just connect with them mm-hmm. and hold their hand and say, "Look, you're going to be okay." Yeah. And and use the right tone and use the right approach and not panic in any way. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even lighten lighten that mood a little just with a, a, a quip or, or something mm-hmm. in, in order to just relax them enough which then relaxes their whole body and then mm-hmm. you're far more able to to uh, move them and, and, and look after them yeah so it wasn't about the masculine side of that there it was just purely about caring yeah 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 so i, I didn't join the job for the 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 kurt russell uh, fire tuning ripped down axe in hand <laughs> and child in another hand walking yeah. out of the flames I, I joined it because i wanted to care for yeah. people and i care about people yeah so the masculine feminine kind of side did not matter in any way because i was able to uh, use that caring in all aspects of the job should it be a school visit a, a uh, a visit to an old person's home, an older person's home, or or was it at incidences that we attended? Mm-hmm. It was using your care and taking care of people. 
and that made the switch into the counselling world very simple because mm. it's it's a different form of taking care and without getting too dramatic or corny that's a different form of life saving mm-hmm. well actually just to kind of take the the pressure off you saying that I was just about to jump in and say when you think about it it's both frontline work it's just in a different sort of arena um, and something you said earlier, I would love to kind of unpack that a wee bit. You had this great thing you said, oh, I, I needed to go and get qualifications because, you know, I needed to figure out how to keep myself safe. Yeah. And obviously with the firefighting job, you've got your equipment, you've got your physical things that keep you safe, you've got your helmet, you know, you've got your suit. How, as a counsellor, or for a lot of people listening who maybe are in some sort of a caring capacity for a loved one, a partner, or whatever... How do you keep yourself safe? The the therapeutic counselling side of things is based around caring for others and you can only care for others properly if there is that self-care. You need to be operating properly in order to help anybody else. The thing about the fire service, yeah, you've got your, your kit. You have the best kit in the world unless if you don't have the team around you, mm. if you don't have somebody on your back, if you don't have somebody keeping an eye on you, looking out for you, mm-hmm. you're at great risk. Mm-hmm. So if you were to do the gung-ho and run straight into the, the fire, well, you wouldn't run in without any of your kit on. You mm-hmm. have to make sure you're fully kitted up and you do your body check to make sure of that. But if you did that, you're putting yourself and others at risk. So you need that team. Is it safe to go in now? It's safe to go in, right? Does everybody know where we're going and what we're doing? Yes, it is. Right, well, let's go then. Mm -hmm. In the counselling capacity, is it safe to go there Mm -hmm. with whatever subject we're talking about? Is there something that's just about to come out with someone, Who, what they're talking about? Am I safe to hold this? Am I qualified? Uh, Are we okay to go here? Have Mm -hmm. I got the team around me? Mm -hmm. So my team would be, uh, with my, my own self-care, with my knowledge and then the continuing, continual personal development and then your supervision, mm-hmm. which is absolutely key in what we're doing now. So that's your supervisor that you go to once a month and say, here's what I'm doing and here's how I'm operating. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's their job then to say, are you doing okay? Are you okay? And is your work okay? Mm-hmm. It's all about the safety there's no point in somebody coming to you if you're not operating safely. So if you're taking on stuff just to get the money in, just mm-hmm. to just to try and fix and heal this client, mm-hmm. you are operating at a very dangerous level. If you are talking to clients about something that you have no knowledge about, mm-hmm. you are going to cause incredible harm. Mm. And if you are operating in a very, very unsafe and detached way mm-hmm. on your own agenda... Client's going to pick that up, and and you could damage that client long term. Uh, there's two quotes. I'll, I'll just throw one out and just hear a reaction. Uh, the only thing worse than not getting counselling is bad counselling. I agree with that. And there are some very bad counsellors out there. There are some poor counsellors. What people don't realise it is that it's an unregulated field. You can put a, a, a sign up in your office door saying that you're a counsellor. You can be absolutely horrific at counselling and still be able to continue because there's nobody following that up. Mm-hmm. If you've ever, and I've had people who have had experiences of bad counselling, and it'll take them years to come back again. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I hear these lovely words, of my other counsellor said, <laughs> and you're just waiting for it. Uh-oh. 
you're just waiting and you're th- and, you, and at times I have to shake my head and go my god mm-hmm. really what is going on out there so we do need regulated we do need continual assessments mm-hmm. and we, we do need feedback from clients to be able to feed that into the organisations mm-hmm. and there's not enough of that so there are some very poor counsellors out there yeah. who are in it for themselves and their own agenda. And the last thing on their list is about caring for others. Yeah. They'll either care for their bank balance or they'll care, mm-hmm. care for their own um, ego. Yeah. I, I don't know how to necessarily formulate this next bit, but this concept of, uh, you know, ancient sort of, I don't know if it's a proverb, ancient question uh, of this idea of, you know, physician heal thyself. And, uh, you know, there seems to be, certain people that get into counselling who have issues themselves Mm -hmm. and maybe get into it for the wrong reasons, even get into it for the right reasons, but because, like you said, they haven't necessarily dealt with their own issues, that then can cause damage. Agreed, yeah. And uh, going through a lot of the courses with with different people, you can see that they're they're in it for their own, they're searching for something mm. for themselves and amongst it all and uh, definitely not ready to be in front of anyone until you have that that area of your head cleared. Mm. A lot of us carry what I call the triple locked section of our head. Oh, I like it. You know, it's just triple locked down. Nobody's getting in there. Yeah. No, nobody's. Uh, and not even not even I'm getting in there. You know, they'll, they'll not even go there themselves because it's just, it's not it's not an area they want to go to. Mm. But if you ever sit with a client and they maybe surprisingly come out with something, so maybe they're attending with a bereavement issue and all of a sudden they just hit you with historical abuse that's happened to them. And if that is something in your triple locked locker, that's going to spring open. Mm-hmm. And if that springs open in front of a client, well, you should really not be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's important that we look at our, the stuff in our own head, carry out lots of this lovely self-assessment stuff, yeah. uh, the, the head-to-toe scan. Am I fit, ready, and healthy for this day's work? Am mm-hmm. I ready for this next client? Am I operating as well as I can be? Yeah. Yeah. Not knowing what's, what's coming, but as totally. long as you, it, it's, this, it's the self-care. Self-care for me, it's... Uh, kind of based around exercise, really, for me. Uh, I, I, I do push this healthy body, healthy mind uh, approach. Um, we did some fundraising through the fire service with chest, heart and stroke and mind-wise with a healthy body, healthy mind approach and just trying to say to people, look, keep keeping your body fit and healthy, yeah, but it's keeping our brain fit and healthy too, mm. you know, exercising it, clearing out stuff that doesn't need to be there, keeping mm. it fit. Totally. And, and it blends in because if, if if you're if you're fit, healthy, and active, you're far more prepared for mental health issues. Absolutely. Well, I mean, like even just like you know, on the fundamental brain chemistry level of your dopamine receptors and all that sort of stuff, your your exercise is paramount. All that, and it doesn't have to be half marathons and and yeah. uh, triathlons <laughs> and stuff. Because I I. 
I, I would suggest even simple walks, just keeping it simple early on and, and not over-stretching yourself and not over-challenging yourself because that eventually will lead to either disappointment or self-loathing. That, mm. oh, I can't even do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But on a personal level for me, walking, swimming, running, cycling, mm-hmm. you know, that, that works for me. Yeah. For others, it's Pilates and yoga. It, yeah. It's spin cycling. It's it's boxer size, aerobic. Um, uh, aerobics in the swimming pool, yeah. aqua aerobics. Yeah, you know it's whatever suits, whatever matches you as as the person. And there's no point if you're carrying twenty twenty five stone. There's no point in you putting on a pair of shoes and going for a run. Sure, because that's not going to do you absolutely, <laughs> any, absolutely. Any physical just give you sore knees. Well, you know th- th- things will go twang yeah. fairly easily. Yeah. The other thing I've found with exercise is people become obsessed with it, mm-hmm. and it takes over their lives. And they push the boundaries more and more. So it goes from a couch to 5K, say a 10K, and then it goes to half marathons and then marathons and then ultras and mm-hmm. triathlons and Ironman. And, and it just completely swamps and takes over their lives. Mm-hmm. And it ends up the people around them get affected because their family aren't being yeah. uh, taken care of or noticed. And it just becomes it just like this is an obsession. Yeah. And I have I have seen a lot of people who have come from another form of addiction, mm. and they have gone into exercise, and it's become it's just that addictive personality. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, the, the, the you know the, the common ones gambling addiction, um, uh, alcohol, drugs, yeah, and they would drop that and go right. I, I need to get, and it just becomes that kind of mm. obsessive approach. Mm-hmm. And it causes just as much harm in the mm-hmm. end because it, it, it just yeah. wipes out everything else. Yeah. It just controls them. So zooming out and asking you a question that's probably worthy of a PhD thesis. So forgive me for asking such a big one. Um, talk to me about mental health and Northern Ireland. And do you think that there are any specific reasons? I'm not asking you. Here are the four exact oh, reasons. Yes. Why, uh-huh. You know, but are there particular things that you have observed or you see that would maybe explain why we as an island are experiencing large numbers of mental health issues? It's very hard to pinpoint any in in, in general, but uh, let's start with the the, the gender side of things. In general, men, males, will not talk. We are talking more, but in general, we won't talk. If you see a crowd of lads at the at the bar out, out for a night in the pub, they'll talk about football, they'll talk about sex, they'll talk about uh, TV, they'll talk about cars, engineering, music, that kind of thing. Will mm-hmm. they talk about their feelings? No. Mm-hmm. Is everybody doing rightly? Everybody's fine. Everybody's cracking on. Everybody's got the mask on. And then behind the scenes, it's, it's anything but... The, the, so Northern Ireland has is really no different from from anywhere else like that. The statistics again, it's all based on statistics, but you know, men are so many more times likely to to take their own lives here than than, than women. And again, it's it's about the talking. It's about the lack of talking in Northern Ireland. Again, I would say there is that um, suspicion and doubt. If you grew up in the 70s and 80s, be careful who you talk to. Mm. Be careful what you say. Now, if, you're, if your mum or dad were in the uniformed civil service, 
Uh, you always, you know, there were, what's your mom or dad do? They're in the civil service. <laughs> yeah. They happen to drop their car keys every morning and have a quick scoot under the car. Yeah. They, they, they moved house quite often mm-hmm. or they had this wonderful colored glass in their windows. Mm-hmm. They had to be extra careful. You had to be extra vigilant. Uh, in Northern Ireland, if you were with someone and uh, you automatically try and judge are you Catholic or Protestant by what someone says or the school they go to or how they pronounce a certain letter. Mm-hmm. Careful what you say, careful who you talk to, careful in case you're judged. Again here, we've had uh, historical influences of the church in all its branches and not in a kind, caring, compassionate and supportive way. Uh, very judgmental, uh, very opinionated, and in a lot of cases, very oppressive. Mm. Here's how you live. Mm-hmm. Here's how you must live. And if you don't, we will condemn you. So we have a church based on condemnation, on guilt, and on shame. Mm-hmm. Wonderful things to carry with you yeah. from a young age. Great building blocks. Yeah, yeah I remember you know, school talks with these kids of five or six, and, and, and I remember the clergy comes in and says, God's watching your every move. Mm. You know, my God, the fear <laughs> that that can put into, into a youngster and, and how uh, manipulative those messages can be. Mm-hmm. So instead of, of kindness and compassion and support and guidance, we we fill our population with guilt and shame and fear. You must come to chapel. You must come to church or else you are condemned. Mm. Right, well, I better go. Mm-hmm. You must not speak out in any way or you will be condemned. Right, okay. And that then feeds into that careful who you talk to, careful what you say. And we become quite closed, quite protected we put up our defences. So our standard replies, how are you? I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm grand. Mm-hmm. How's things? Dead on. Mm-hmm. All right, mugger. Yeah, grand. Thanks. Brilliant. See you down the pub. See you out there. You going for coffee? Ah, come on. Let's talk about everything except the important stuff. Wow. I think there's a lot of that. It's changing. Mm-hmm. Yep. But sometimes in the counselling world, you'll get people who are very protective coming in. Mm-hmm. And there's that lack of trust. Mm. And until they trust you completely, they will not tell you anything of importance. Uh, rarely. Mm-hmm. rarely. And some people will come in and they'll trust you straight away. They'll get you and they'll be very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. But what we lack in, in our culture based on our history is the ability to trust each other. Wow. And the ability to hold information. <laughs> We're not great as a culture of being confidential. Yeah. You know, there, there's, the, there's the gossiping world. There's the OMG world. Oh, my God, right? Tell, go on, better go and tell. So, but here, did you hear such and such? We've got the social media, which tells everybody everything. Mm-hmm. And we've some people's lives who are played out over social media. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've so many factors there. What is it about Northern Ireland that makes us right up there? Undoubtedly, the the legacy of, of mm. what we've been through over the last forty years, yeah, and a lot longer than that, yeah, and only in in my opinion, based on the way the country has been at times held the ransom by state and mm. by uh, the uh, religious authorities within yeah. that, yeah. Again, personal 
personal views. No, it's really interesting. I really appreciate that. So again, I'm going to stick kind of big picture, high level. Um, and so feel free just to have a punt at some of these. Uh, you know, so you say the big issue is a lack of trust. And that is, based on what you've said, very much systemic, very much inherit, inherited, almost on a DNA level. That's not true. You understand what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm. passed down. What can we do, ready for the big audaciousness of the question, mm-hmm. as a nation to move past some of those issues? At the heart of it, to be kinder. Simply to be kinder, to be more understanding, to see behind, to see behind the, the person, to see behind that issue, to see behind what is going on, to be more patient. Uh, certainly, you know, you, you, you look at the, the, that word compassion, you look at that, those words of being understanding and patient, there are some people that is very, very difficult to be that with. <laughs> but if someone is carrying fear, you know, that can come out as aggression. Mm. If someone is struggling with a direction that they're going in, you know, that may come out as anxiety and, and, and at times panic. Uh, years ago there was a there was a phone in and uh, there was a woman complaining about the goths that that gathered at the city hall and she was a, a deeply and uh, a quite uh, opinionated religious person you know and she, how dare they you know almost almost comparing them to devil worshippers sure, because yeah. they wore black clothes and black <laughs> And I couldn't help but go on and reply. Mm-hmm. It's not something I do very often, but I went on and replied. And I said, I've met these, met these kids, and they're the most lovely, uh, generous, kind kids. And they just, a lot of the time, struggle with their identity. And they're, you know, they've got their crowd, and they feel safe, and they feel accepted in that. And if you're coming at it from a religious point of view, well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, mm. is, is what we're told in the Bible. And that comes from uh, understanding and patience. And if we have understanding and patience, we start to see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. If we see the bigger picture, then that leads then to a form of acceptance of what's going on. It's not causing harm to anyone. Mm-hmm. And if there's more acceptance, then there's more understanding mm-hmm. or at least an ability to try and understand more. Mm-hmm. And if there's more understanding, there will be a level of compassion there. And if we have compassion, then we have love. Mm-hmm. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Mm-hmm. It's the, the simplicity of that. Yeah. Not preaching judgment and not preaching uh, condemnation, yeah. but uh, preaching that area of love and understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that we've lost our way quite a bit. We've got too caught up in everything else that we forgot the simplicity of the basics. Mm. In life, you know, it's all become too rushed, too hectic and too demanding. And if we sat back a little and just look at the the simplicity of it, it's about understanding. Mm -hmm. And if we have that understanding towards ourselves, if we can turn that inward and stop being so hard on ourselves and stop being too judgmental on ourselves, almost constantly scanning ourselves for fault and how could I be better and what is wrong with me, if we can turn that to... Uh, love and compassion and say, well, well, what's right? Mm. What have I got that's right with me and how can I use that? Mm -hmm. How can I turn that for good? Mm -hmm. How can I use it and not abuse it? I I think that's a lovely thing to be able to have. How can I use what I have and not abuse it? Mm. How can I use that to help others and not hinder them? That's great. So play this out for me then. Thank you, by the way. That was really insightful. And 
it did deal in that kind of bigger picture. We all know that, you know, big ships are nearly impossible to turn. And if they do, they take a long time. And I, I usually avoid talking about the big picture country level stuff because I have very um, little trust in uh, the ability for massive change to take place on a big scale. But I have the utmost confidence and hope and a real firm belief that things can change dramatically on a small individual family level. Mm -hmm. So play some of this stuff out on that smaller stage with our families, with our kids, with our mates in the pub, with our colleagues. How can we as individuals take personal responsibility to start to change that culture in the direction that it needs to go? It can only come from individuals making that change. Uh, it, it doesn't matter how how difficult it is to, to turn the super tanker. It's who's at the helm. Mm. Do we want to turn? Uh, sometimes we need to change direction. Sometimes we need to be able to adapt and adjust. And uh, a lot of the time there's this stubbornness that we just, it's it's been wrong before, but I'm still going to do it. <laughs> nope, it's wrong again. Right, okay, that didn't work, but I'm, I'm going to try it again. <laughs> but it, it's not going to work, I know, but I'm going to try it again. I'm yeah. just going to keep playing on and d- keep doing the same things that I've always done. Yeah. Keep falling into that cycle that we've always fallen into at a personal level, at a family level, and then it gets passed down. The transgenerational thing gets passed down. Well, that's how it was done, so that's how we'll do it, and we'll pass it on. In our country, it's a political level. This is how we've always done it, and it's never worked, but we're going to carry on that way. Uh, seriously, every election, you know, you stare, stare at the ballots and going, okay, yeah. I wonder where this is going to go. And we fall into the cycle of repeat, fail, repeat, fail. There are families and individuals who will fail and repeat, fail and repeat until they realize, recognize that change needs to happen. Some form of uh, uh, maybe a, uh, being able to adapt a little or in some cases just tweak it, not major things, in order for it to uh, change the, the, the difference to come. So sometimes it's the tiny things that makes the big difference. Mm. But it's the ability to see the tiny thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever... Uh, sometimes in family therapy that that, that uh, I would have a full family sitting in front of me and in one case the mom had phone says you know, my son is this and my son is that and my son is this you know it's this 17 year old and, and he, he comes along and the dad sits there and the mom sits there and the, the dad's the classic quiet sits meekly you know <laughs> and the mom's telling me all what's wrong with her son and the son's sitting there right okay and you know, adamant, and this is going on, going on. And we try and introduce and, 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 and uh, involve everyone within the family to get the opinion. And there's this beautiful moment whenever the mum, this is maybe three, four sessions in, maybe more, whenever the mum has this, I know if, if epiphany is the right word, but she has this dawning moment of, it's, it's me, isn't it? <laughs> it's me, isn't it? And, you know, for so much of, of me as an individual staring at her early on going, I know where the problem is here. Mm. I can't bring that out and say, 
you know, you, know the, the, you, you could see the, the guy in the pub saying, you know, we're tell you, love, you're the problem here, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, it, has to, it has to wait until there's that recognition from the person. Yeah. And it, it's a beautiful moment. I remember it was just such a beautiful moment. It's me, isn't it? Well, what would make you think that? <laughs> you know? And whenever she said it, you could see the husband just quiet. You know, there's a, it was almost like comedy moment yeah. where he sits with us, we smile and a, a gentle nod going, you got it. You've got it, you know. So we have to look within the circumstances, whether family, work, uh, uh, in, in our social lives, and ask ourselves how much of us is, is in this situation much of us as individuals is, is in this situation. And, and what are we bringing to that? So are we bringing uh, mediation? Are we bringing reconciliation? Are we bringing patience, kindness and understanding? Or are we bringing uh, um, impatience? Are we bringing judgment? And, and are we failing to shift from our own possession? So this would all be better if you all just did this, this mm. and this. Oh, would it? Right, Okay. You know, look, I'm not doing anything wrong here. All these, you know, you hear this. I, I don't know what's going on because, look, I, 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 I'm not certainly, I'm not to blame. Yeah. And if we had more introspection, the ability to look into ourselves a wee bit more and say, like, hold on here. If I'm being really honest with myself, mm. what can I, what, what do I need to do here myself? And then if somebody else sees that, they'll be, well, you know, if they're willing to adapt and change. And we have this wonderful thing called compromise. Mm. Bring that into any situation, the ability to compromise, the ability to get understanding, the ability to give and take. And then you have this wonderful reciprocal relationship. So that reciprocation is the back and forward. If you imagine the peasants going back and forward, back and forward. And we've got this wonderful way of the back and forth nature of a, of a well-oiled, well-flowing relationship. Mm. And whether that's with your children, whether that's with your parents, whether that's with friends or whether it's with your partner, uh, to have that kind of uh, wonderful back and forth nature of it, the give and take and the openness of being able to discuss early on. Mm. What, what I find is a relationship will break down once communication breaks down. If we fail to communi communicate in a healthy way, the relationship is headed in one way, and it's not great. If it's a marriage, it's headed in the lovely area of solicitors and letters and lots of money mm -hmm. being paid out to them. If it is in a relationship, it's the, the silence. Once the silence comes in, we're in trouble. Mm. You know, the, the inability to talk. And if we can't nip things early on, so if there's something annoying you early on and it's not nipped, well, then that leads to this lovely festering, um, toxic and eventually poisonous concoction that will end up destroying relationships. And you can see it throughout our culture. You can see it throughout uh, groups. You can see it in organisations and then bringing it right down almost to your individual because mm. if there is an issue with yourself and you're aware of it and you're not doing anything about it that will then fester wow. and become toxic so if there's an issue within your own world that needs sorted whether mm. it's uh, substance abuse of some form whether it's a personal abuse of some form whether it's abuse of others if we fail to spot that that becomes a particularly toxic individual which will then feed into a 
toxic situation, maybe mm-hmm. into a toxic family, create toxicity within the family, poisonous family, which will then ripple out and have mm-hmm. incredible effects in school friends and school teachers and mm-hmm. the school environment. You can see it all happening. Absolutely. Does that make sense to you? Totally, that? totally, yeah. So two kind of places I want to go before we start to land the plane. There's a few stock questions I ask everybody, but um, first one is kind of on the back of what we have been talking about in terms of the counselling. So we have mentioned, you know, it's important to get a good counsellor. We've mm-hmm. said that, you know, sometimes uh, the only thing worse than not getting counselling is bad counselling. And that's not to undermine the importance of counselling. I've been through it. It works. It's good. It's worthwhile. I personally am of the opinion that everyone should go through Agreed. some form of it. Mm-hmm. In light of that, for people listening, what should they be looking out for uh, if they're taking that first step to see a counsellor? Best practices. Best practices. Well, you see this because, again, going back to the unregulated, uh, if, if you've... The difficulty with being with a bad counsellor, you may have only had that experience of counselling mm-hmm. and you don't know or have anything to compare it to. Mm-hmm. So you might just think, well, is this what counselling is? And it'll either put you off or you'll go and do things that this bad counsellor has told you to. Mm-hmm. Counselling is not about advising and, and, and telling people what to do and fixing. It's, a, it's a, the ability to have that individual be able to do that for themselves, to give them that empowerment, you know, that mm. kind of self-governance and that to be able to have this wonderful word of autonomy, to be in control of their own lives, not be not be told what to do by a counsellor because that just adds them to the list of possibly well-meaning friends and family who know exactly <laughs> yeah, what's wrong yeah. with us and exactly. what, we need to, uh, what we need to do. So the, the first steps... The difficulty is, it's like opening up the old yellow pages. If you're looking for a plumber or an electrician, you open up and there's pages and pages of these things. Or, gosh, I need the windows changed. Well, gosh, there's three pages of people. Who's the right one? Uh, it's lovely if you can get word of mouth recommendation. You know, this guy's really good. Get them. But in the counselling field, we've, we, we really struggle to get business because it's rare that someone will say, I've been to counselling, I found him very good, you might want to talk to him, here's his number. Because of the stigma that still carries around with mental health. So if it's a plaster or a plumber, a gardener, yeah, here, get this. You wouldn't even think twice about yeah, it. Yeah. But when it comes to a counselor, do you know, I know a good one, but I don't want them to know that I've been the counsellor because <laughs> they might think I'm some sort of basket case, yeah. and I don't really yeah. want them to, to know that. So I'll, I'll just not say. But that is a good form of of of, uh, of of being pointed in the right direction. There's the British Association of Counsellors and Psychiatrists, the BACP, and they have a website of registered counsellors. You might be able to look one up in, in the area. And there's also the National Counselling Society, the NCS, and, and they will have their accredited list of counsellors within your, your area. Mm. And if you go, uh, if you pick a counsellor from that list and they're not good, you can feed back your complaint into those organisations mm. and at least that then will highlight that this mm-hmm. counsellor is mm-hmm. maybe not operating. To make sure that they're well qualified and don't be afraid to ask for their qualifications, to make sure that you see them and to make sure that you have evidence that they are undergoing supervision within mm, their practice. That's key, I think, actually. That's, that's a big, big wow, one. Yeah. You know? If they don't have a supervisor, don't go anywhere near them. Mm. If, they, if they don't have 
decent qualifications. I, now, I don't base a good counsellor on qualifications because I know some counsellors out there who are really well qualified and have lots of letters after names and I wouldn't put a stuffed chicken in front of them. <laughs> uh, so it, it's about that part. There are some great people out there who could be great doctors, mm-hmm. you know, brilliant, brilliant people who are very intuitive and very switched on and able to, to connect with the person, brilliant bedside manner, but they'll never be the doctor because they couldn't get the qualification. Yeah, yeah. And again, great doctors out there who have uh, great qualifications. But if you've ever encountered a consultant or, or a, a doctor who has been as cold as, a, mm-hmm. as an iceberg, you just, oh, sure, boy, yeah. totally clinical. Yeah. So you want somebody who you can connect with. You want somebody who has got some warmth behind them and ideally life experience. Mm-hmm. Because if you go to a counsellor who's had a, a reasonable Disney-fied life and you know, there's, there's never too many, it's all kind of followed through and they've done these great courses and their head is full of wonderful techniques and approaches, but they don't have the experience, eventually you'll get that and they'll, they'll be using fine words and you'll be looking at them going, you've really nothing to back that up. Because mm. uh, with anybody coming to me for their first session, I'll say, you are going to be checking me out. Mm-hmm. And they will. Whether they know it or not, they will be checking me out. So who is this guy? What does he know? Mm-hmm. Why should I trust him? Mm-hmm. What does what is it about him that I should be able to tell my innermost thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. to? And can I trust him to hold those and not tell anyone? Mm-hmm. And I would reinforce that with younger people who have come to me and say, look, I'm not going to phone your mum and dad after this and tell them how we got on. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's that level of privacy and protection yeah. with the boundaries, obviously, of, course, of, yeah. of, of yeah. those. That's great. Um, last wee bit, and... Uh, Really, if we could kind of come at this almost on more of like a bullet point sort of level. Um, so it's January now, okay? It's dark, it's cold, it's after the beautiful feasts of Christmas hmm. or after the really hard time of Christmas for people listening. What things, we've already talked about exercise, what are some basic things you used to f- a phrase earlier on you know, the small things that make a big difference I had mm-hmm. a guest on the show about a year and a half ago and they said small din- small hinges open big doors oh, yeah. I quite like that you know are there some things we can be doing to take care of ourselves our mental health at this time of the year that you think make a big difference definitely uh, the, the ability to not get the January when we're burnt out completely skinned up to our eyes in debt and uh, uh, almost uh, traumatised by the last three weeks of of whatever Christmas and the run-out is to. So the work actually begins long before January. So uh, we look at our financial situation and say, well, what can I do and what can't I do? And make sure everybody's aware of that so there's no pressure to, right, I must get this and I must buy that. Well, they're buying me that, so I've got to do this. Doing It's different this time, this time of the year, but... Uh, Normal run-ups to Christmas. Are there office parties that I really don't want to go to? Well, don't go to them. Are there big social events that I really feel uncomfortable with and they're going to cause me an awful lot of stress? I'm going to have to buy new clothes for it. I'm going to be judged throughout the evening and it's going to cost me 150 quid. Do I need to go to that? Have I got people coming and staying over the, the period that I really don't want? to see is there any way of avoiding it. Sometimes it's unavoidable. So if it's unavoidable, well, what do I need to put in place in order to make this manageable? Mm. 
uh, am I going to get to January and have cupboards full of uneaten and going off food that I sort of bought on a whim? Am I going to be drinking too much? Am I going to be taking far too many drugs because that's what's happening for a lot of people over Christmas? Being careful, being aware and, and, and taking control of Christmas, not let it take control of you. Taking control of that situation, not let the situation control you. So would you get to the 2nd, 3rd of January and go, right, fairly intact, I think. I think we got through that okay. We've got eight weeks of hibernation. Most of us sort of go into our cells January and February and in, in the hope that the, 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 the days lengthen to five o'clock. <laughs> we're doing okay. But if you put the preparation in beforehand, it gets to January and I think, well, okay. For a lot of people, the first thing they do in January is contact the solicitor because their relationship's done and mm. had enough. For a lot of people, it's booking holidays, moving home, looking at the change in jobs. Again, with the COVID pandemic year, this is different. Mm -hmm. So it's getting there with enough intact, making sure you've got your team and your support around you. If you are there in a complete burnt out, uh, toxic world, well, what are we bombarded with? With every magazine and every program on TV, the January detox. Mm -hmm. Really? You know, detox equals excess, coming from excess. Well, if we're able to get the excess under control, we'll, we'll, we'll lower the limits of toxicity. Mm. Do we need to go and talk to somebody? Do we need to make changes and adapt, and adapt things, what we talked about earlier? Well, okay, if that's the time of year to do it, put it in place. As long as it's positive, as long as it's not hurting anybody, it's mm. not, as long as it's being detrimental to anybody, mm. put those in and perhaps this new year can be something different for you mm -hmm. because then we get away from that fail, repeat, fail, repeat cycle. Maybe this is the time to say, okay, something different this year, a different challenge. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. I think that's really, really interesting. Um, like I said, Noel, there's a couple of uh, stock questions we ask every single person uh, we had the chance to talk to bit kind of random some serious some silly mm -hmm. um we'll kind of jump off in the deep end uh first one is out of everything you've experienced so far and this is you on a personal level or you in whatever way you want to take this um what has been your greatest challenge so far and if you don't mind sharing how were you able to overcome it the challenges for me have been throughout life there there have been great challenges along the way right up to present day uh, the early stuff of going to school every day uh, secondary school especially for five years I was bullied pretty much every single day mm. and I remember going to school my first day of fifth year and I left the house in tears I think you're talking a big lad six foot plus heading off school uniform on and crying before I'd walk down the, the road to, to meet the mates and get the train up to up to school because I knew what I was going back into. Mm. Uh, you were punched daily, you were kicking the ghoulies daily, you were spat on, you had itching powder thrown at you, you were ridiculed. And uh, I covered it with the, the standard comedy, wisecracking idiot. But underneath, I'd say they were challenging years mm. and you had to get up and go to school. There was none of this, I'm not going back. Yeah. Uh, there was, you had no choice. You go to school every day. So the challenges started off with that. There was challenges in work through the fire service. 
uh, challenging situations, but mostly challenging people that I that I had to deal with and and people who struggled with my uh, personality and with my character because I I was understanding and compassionate, and some people were just downright hateful, mm-hmm. and it was difficult to deal with those. I've had ulcerative colitis since I was 20. Uh, it's a bowel inflammation disease. It can be very antisocial at times. <laughs> uh, it, it can be incredibly crippling at times. There are sofa days where it's difficult to get up and, and, and do stuff. But it's the, it, that is a challenge at times when that flares up. And it's with you for life. So there's lifelong medication. There are annual colonoscopies. There's always a risk, especially at this stage now, 30-odd years on, of uh, the next colonoscopy finding something that you really don't want to be there. So it's dealing with that. I had a, I had a, my discs, I had a ruptured discs in my back in 2004, 2005, and I've lived with back pain ever since. And there were some fairly challenging years, mm. uh, some fairly dark days. Chronic pain, that's... Hard to live with and invisible. So, yep. you know, no plaster, no stitches, no scars, no stick... It was. It's just the invisibility of it all, and people automatically assuming that you're swinging the lead. Yep. You know, nothing wrong with you. So, and it was a huge challenge to get yourself picked up off the operating table, and take two or three years to get back into it, to eventually take on um, short runs, cycles, getting back into that way to challenge yourself and say, look, it's not what I can't do; it's what I can do. Mm. Come on, think about this. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Do you overcome the fears and. Uh, I did the Great North Run in 2012 and I crossed the line with tears in my eyes mm-hmm. again. And you're crossing with hundreds of other people. And I remember crossing it going, I, I was at one stage not going to walk properly and mm-hmm. I was at one stage going to lose my job. I was at one stage not going to be able to. I'm being told, you know, all this. And here I am, I've just run a half marathon, you know, the Great North Run, the Red Arrow's going overhead. Yeah, and I'm yeah. going, flip me, this is, look what I've just done. Yeah. You know, and, and and I don't think many people would get it because I, I think people say, oh, yeah, how quickly did you do it? What was your time? <laughs> what was your, that's the first thing anybody said. What was your time? It's not about the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about the time. It's the getting there. It's mm-hmm. getting across the finish line. It doesn't tell, it's not about how quick or how long it takes you to get there as long as you're going in the right direction. And mm-hmm. I use that in life so often. It's not about how long it'll take to get to a certain place as long as you're moving in the right direction. And do you need that help and support behind you to keep you going? Mm -hmm. You know, it was a beautiful feeling to be able to do that. It's lovely to be able to engage with um, some of the challenges, the the fitness challenges, stuff I did in the fire brigade in order to raise profile and, and, and about the mental health. You know, get out there and do it. Whenever I was 49, I I signed up for the Amsterdam Marathon <laughs> and I remember going over on the plane. I just did it. I went, went over on the Saturday, ran it on the Sunday, came home on the Monday. And I went over on the plane and I'd never done it. I said, what, I think, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? <laughs> you know, this is daft. I'm, I'm on a plane on my own, you know, heading off on my own, going to a hotel for the night and then trying to find the start line for nine o'clock <laughs> the next morning in a city I've never been to. And it was beautiful. Mm. To run round as a jog lightly, uh, I'll, I'll put run in inverted commas, you know, and uh, uh, applaud round uh, a city is a beautiful way to see it. It's a lovely way to see a city is to do mm. a marathon or a half marathon. And and to get to the sort of 18 mile mark and go, oh, I am struggling here. I could really do a phone call from home mm. or, you know, just uh, come on, just keep it lit, keep her going. Mm. It was 23 degrees, it was quite warm. 
And I remember then coming in and, and just doing the final lap and thinking, do you say there's a challenge? Mm. That that was a challenge. And to look back on that, it's it's challenges all right the way through life. Mm. In, in business, I had a business partner who I, I trusted implicitly. Uh, we were great friends. We trained together and we'd worked together for years and years. And uh, uh, two years ago, I uncovered the fact that she'd taken all the money from the account and the firm and she'd basically been lying to me for five years. And mm. that challenged my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, my faith full stop but mm-hmm. it challenged my faith in human beings it destroyed trust in so many mm-hmm. things and it led me to challenge people do I trust them are they telling the truth mm-hmm. so challenge is right up to date and then recently losing three good friends over the last two years to cancer mm-hmm. uh, big challenges there when you're at your friends lifelong friends bedside the night before they die and tubes and difficulties breathing all the, the stuff that goes with it and the challenge of being able to sit with them and uh, and hold them mm-hmm. and hold their hands and tell them that you love them mm-hmm. it's a it's 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 a it's a thing of beauty mm-hmm. to be able to be able to do that but it stays with you you know it, the, these kind of things stay with you and it's a challenge of keeping engaged with life mm-hmm. Keeping engaged with the day-to-day life, knowing that it's it's fragile, knowing that it can take away from you at any time. And in the job that I did, I, I, I saw how fragile it was when so many great plans and, and great things happening for them and then wiped out in, a, in an accident you know, or a collision. And you, you always maintain that, you know, that challenge to keep engaged when our mental health is struggling and you want to withdraw and hibernate, the challenge to stay focused in some way and keep alive. Mm. And if anyone's listening to this and they're struggling with that challenge of of living, is to it, it's to keep that focus, it's to, it's to maintain that challenge and say, I will meet that. Mm-hmm. I will get to tea time. I will get to night time. I will go through another night in the hope that tomorrow will be slightly easier. Mm-hmm. Do I need those people around me? Do I need team? Do I need somebody else? Do I need to go and reach out? Do I need to adapt and adjust my life? Do it. Mm. Don't tell me, show me was an old saying that a, a boss of mine said. That's fine, son, but don't tell me, show me. You know, Brilliant. Go do it. Put it into practice. There's a wonderful thing in uh, uh, Philippians, I think it is. Whatever's lovely, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right. You know, Think about these things. But the key line to me was put it into practice. So it's all right talking a good game. But actually put it into practice. Go do it. So is there something you need to adapt? Is there someone that could do with a cup of tea? Is there someone that could use a chat? Is there someone that could just need held for that for mm-hmm. that small time? And it's the simple things, Matt. Always remember, it's not the big stuff. It's the simple. It's the simple things. And 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 what I what I learned from this is there was a guy. Uh, I don't want to go over our time, but there's a there was a guy uh, who investigated after someone had taken their own lives. So we would go to their flat or go to their apartment and, and look for clues and signs, like, what, what, what was going on here? And I've used this story before, but um, it was in a book by Thomas Joyner. And it described a, a, a guy who went to a guy's flat. It was in San Francisco, and uh, he was heading to the Golden Gate Bridge to, to, to jump. And he did, and this guy had gone to his flat to look for clues. And there was a note in his diary saying, if anyone says hello to me on the way to the bridge, I will not jump. Mm. 
And that's the simplicity of all this. Simply acknowledging someone, simply saying hello to anyone, whoever it is in the street. How are you? Hello. Wow. Give them a smile. Meet their eyes. Don't don't uh, avoid. And, and just say hello. That's the simple stuff. And the food bank that we run in Whitehead, it's not about the food. Mm. It's about the simple case of being seen. Uh, being part of the community, being loved, being cared about, being thought about, <laughs> just being thought about. Totally. Beautiful stuff. Totally, man. And so simple. The key to it, keep your world small, keep things simple, and other things will fall into place. Mm. It's brilliant. Flip side of that, greatest success? Hmm. The kids. Hmm. That's that's one of the easier ones. <laughs> totally. My, my my wife and two kids are. That's the heart. That that's the heart for me. Whenever uh, I was in my thirties, whenever we started the family, and, and when Tom came along in two thousand and one, it was a it was a sea change for me. I remember saying. Uh, to a lot of my friends, well, I'll see you all in 20 years. <laughs> uh, because socially wise, that was, that was pretty much it. You know, uh, When they moved to nine o'clock, news back to 10 o'clock, I was like, oh God, what are they doing? Do they not know that people are in bed? Because Tom, uh, it, it was just, as any, any uh, parent will tell you, you know, the, when the first kid comes along, it is, it is, it's quite the thing. But I love being a parent. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that role. And, Kids in the first five years of their lives are sponges. And if they have uh, a warm, comfortable, safe attachment to a, a parent or guardian, that stands them in good stead for the, the rest of their lives. If they feel secure and safe, warm, wanted, that's a, that's a wonderful thing mm. to, to, to give a kid. And if that can be maintained throughout their stages, Tom's coming 20, in February and he's way off in his second year of university Cameron came along in, in 2003 so I had these two young lads I've got the two boys and and Jill and I I think adapt very well to it and I think we've worked very well with it all um, she loved me for saying that she uh, she wasn't the best at the at the, the dirty nappy type <laughs> stage but you know we, we got through that okay where we connect, we've kept the connection throughout. It's difficult as it can be. There's another challenge, actually, keeping connected with your family, keeping mm-hmm. connected with your kids. And having that ability to hug a, a big lad at 19 and, 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 and 17 to say, look, hey, I love you, I've got mm-hmm. you, and mm-hmm. uh, if you need me, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And eventually that will be reversed. Mm-hmm where uh, I'll be hugging them and they'll be saying, it's okay, Dad, I've got you <laughs> and, and I'm here for you. Yeah. But the, the, there's something, uh, there, the, there is, again, I mentioned the beautiful word again, but it is beautiful, it is lovely, it is, it is calming, it's insightful and it is incredibly challenging bringing up a family. But if you do that well, the rewards are priceless. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, we, our house is up a lane uh, and uh, I was out just doing something in the afternoon, and my two boys—they uh, both go to—they both were at the same school at, this, at, that, at that stage. They both went to BRA, and uh, they were just walking up the lane, and they didn't see me, uh, and I just stood, and it was one of those just grounding moments. I just stood and watched them, 
And I just thought, there's that's gold dust. Mm. That's my lottery win. That I, I that I, I have won that. Mm-hmm. Because when you see those two boys just walking up, almost arm in arm sort of thing, you know, chatting and connected and, and together. And they just walk on. All right, Dad. All right, son. All right. <laughs> that's it. You know, yeah. they're, they're, that's that's gold dust. Yeah. All right, Dad. Aye. Yeah. Dead on, son. <laughs> and it's having that. If you ever remember, there's a beautiful feeling uh, as a kid, and uh, maybe not everybody's experienced this, but if you come out of the bath or come out of the shower and you were a wee toddler, and your parent or your guardian wrapped you in this warm uh, towel. Uh, a big fluffy towel. If you can picture this, even if it didn't happen, picture how this would feel. So you're a kid or a young young kid, and you come out and you you've got that wee shivery moment when you come out of the warm bath, and what? Oh, and the water's evaporating off, and it's causing you to get cold, and you get wrapped up in this lovely soft cuddly towel, and the and your parent or guardian holds you. They just wrap you into you mm. and hold you, and that 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 feeling of security, that's that feeling of warmth, that feeling of being wanted and cared for. You know, best thing you can give a kid is that safety, mm. that, that that security. Best thing you can give a teenager is safety and security. It's okay, love. I've got you. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I've got you, and I'm here for you, and and to be able to alleviate. Reduce the fear, maybe not take it away, but as a parent, if you can, t- if you can ease that fear with them, just in the knowledge that you're there for them, that's that's beautiful work, mm. and that's uh, doubled up with the challenge. So, greatest achievement, yeah, I'll go for that. I'll love go, it. I'll go my, my, my kids. Love it. Um, I always love asking these ones because they feel so out of place tonally. Uh, favorite takeaway in Northern Ireland? <laughs> oh, <favorite> takeaway. <laughs> well, uh, whenever whenever we were were working, my my work was North Belfast, uh, a fire station up on the Westland Road, up on the Cave Hill Road, and then another lot of years down at Whitless Street. And uh, every now and again, we call into Manny's, the, the chippy on the on on the Antrim Road. Good old faithful. Ah, uh, Manny's great, you know, and. Uh, I knew Jillian was a keeper whenever I met her because she says, well, what do you want to do for Valentine's? She says, oh, could we just get a Manny's? And yes. I, said, I thought, you'll, you'll do for me. I, I think we're going to go places here. And uh, the thing about Manny's then was they always give you a big scoop of chips. So you might not ask for a single sausage or a, a single fish. Mm. And there was this guy, you, you walked in the door and there would maybe be 20 people in the queue and you're just in the door and you go, yes. Uh, well, I'm only in the door. Yes, what's yours? That's all you get. That's the only two words I think he ever spoke his entire life. Yes, what's yours? And he'd have this fantastic memory, and he would store all these orders. No need for bits of paper. But on a local level, there's a there's a crack and chippy in Whitehead called Jess's Place, and. Uh, well, my culinary delights seem to go around chip shop. Uh, but, but takeaways, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's just it's it, they're great chippy, uh, great fish suppers, great uh, big lad Andy that works there. He has gold gold medal winning onion rings. As I always <laughs> always tell him, love it, man. Uh, favorite place to get ice cream in Northern Ireland? Favorite place to get ice cream, um, uh, Graham's in Newcastle. Everybody mm. goes to Mods. Everybody, I always go for the smaller places. I always nice. go for the wee places because uh, the, the big, well-known <laughs> places always seem to get it. You'd think because I live in Whitehead, there's a place called the Rinka, uh, just close by, and people come from far and wide to there. 
But there's it's just there's a there's a nice big tiny shop on the main street in Newcastle, mm. and uh, a lot of times we go down with the boys and we go up the morns and we go for a dander, mm-hmm. and our our standard day out would be leave the house early, uh, hit, hit the mountains early, go and get a good day's walking, and then come down and get a fish supper. Oh. Uh, God, there it is again. There's a fish. So it's, it's not the only thing. Where I are you at, John Max? Uh, yeah. Oh, man, it's yeah. killer. It is. In there. And then down up the town, the Grahams, yeah. and you, you get this big dollop. Love it. It's not a scoop. It's just this big dollop of of, of, uh, <laughs> of ice cream on top and whatever dip. And that, that's your day. It's brilliant. brilliant. That, that's that's that, that's uh, that's a, that's another one of those memory moments, yeah. you know. Yeah. Dad, yeah. do you remember the time? Yeah. <laughs> Um, if you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for a dollop of Grahams, dead or alive, and for a chat with them, yep, dead or alive, and they have to be from Northern Ireland. Um, my granda would start. My two grandparents, uh, both dead. One, one. Uh, died before uh, I, I think I was either just born or just before I was born and the other one died when I was in P7 and they were both uh, they were both World War One men mm-hmm. and they were both first day of the Somme men Wow! and they were both uh, I w- the reason I'd love to, to talk to them is to see how I affected their lives were because then there was no PTSD, there was no critical incident stress right. management, there was no debriefing. Those, those things didn't exist. Absolutely not, mm. and, and and there were only the basic uh, starting of shell shock that the, you know that that it was described under, and you're seen almost as a shirker, and some people were shot uh, for just being completely and utterly overwhelmed by it all. My grand Greer uh, the only memory I have him, he's the, he was the grander who died whenever it was P7, P7. And the only real memory of him was, was sitting on a big red brick terrace house in the Antrim Road and the grandfather clock ticking. Mm. And he was sitting on a chair smoking. And my mum had gone to get messages and it was just him and me in the room. And I must have been about six at the time. And that was the only occasion I had a chance to ask him, Granda, what did you do in the war? The classic question that he asked. Wow. And I didn't. And I always regret not being old enough to be able to sit with him mm. and ask him because um, my Granda Greer got injured three times and eventually invalided out in 17. And he, there were two brothers, him and his brother, left to go and fight. And they were meant to come home and marry two girls who happened to be sisters. And his brother was gassed in 1918 and died. He, he was gassed in the March Offensive of 1918, and he died in France of his wounds in June of that year. And I remember the only thing about the house, it had a big picture of, of my great-uncle Joe up on the wall, and I used to put a poppy on it every Remembrance Day. Mm. But my granda was, he was shot in the leg, patched up, sent back out again. He had shrapnel on his shoulder, patched up, sent back out again. And the, the only thing that put him out, then he, he, he got hit by machine gun bullets, and there was... Uh, three were up his arm uh, and, uh, over his elbow and that, that meant that he couldn't hold his rifle so they invalided him out and apparently I don't know too much about this apparently he carried that kind of injury with him mm. the rest of his life but he came home and he worked his backside off mm-hmm. and he travelled far and wide uh, to get jobs and, and work and he worked hard all his life so there was none of this but apparently McGranny used to find him in the hallway in a firing position with the door open uh, waiting for the Germans to come over the top. Wow. And on his deathbed, my dad told me, 
just a couple of days before he died, he would sit bolt upright. It was his 80th birthday he died on. He would sit bolt, bolt, bolt upright and say, steady boys, steady boys, you know, whistle's about to go. Everybody, uh, you know, get ready, get ready, get ready. And they were about to go over the top. Uh, this on his deathbed. And you could only imagine what he carried. And my other granda, uh, my granda McKee, he won the military medal. Uh, for he basically said he wanted for running like hell. He was a runner, so he carried messages from the front line to the communications, and the sniper German snipers would pick the runners off to stop the messages going back. And he got uh, mentioned, and I think my my granda Greer got mentioned in the dispatches, and my granda McKee got uh, the military medal, and uh, he got ga- He always he always apparently carried a touch of gas with him. I see. All his life, he just carried this touch of gas. But he, you know, when, what he came home to was poverty. What mm. he came home to was find work or starve. There was none. Oh, you're a veteran, mm. right? Mm. Well, here we've got this, and we've got this, and we've got this. There was nothing, mm. and I think he carried that bitterness throughout his life. You know, mm. he was quite an angry man mm-hmm. with that because of what he carried. So, I would love to take them as as on a personal scale to find out more about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, for someone living, I would I would take the likes of, of probably Gary Lightbody mm-hmm. and and the, the sit and have a yarn with him because of the mental health issues and the, the great mm-hmm. way he's able to talk. And we organised this thing called Music in Mind in, in Whitehead last year, and it was to encourage people to come out and engage with music and and art uh, as a form of getting a mental health message across. So it, it's something that that needs to be expanded yeah, and picked yeah, yeah. up on. And I'd love to get a chat with Gary about this, you know, yeah. and say, look, how can music and art really help mm. people's mental health, help them engage more, help them to learn new things? We had everything from art workshops, guitar workshops. Uh, we had lots of music. We had uh, built it around yoga and Pilates, everything. It was a beautiful weekend. But that's that's who I would... I would take, and magically, if you could, if you could let me sit down with Rory Gallagher for half an hour, <laughs> I would certainly pick the, the big lads' brains for a while. Love it, man. Love it. Well, no uh, final question. Uh, question we always end on, and it's very simple. If you could go back in time to an eighteen-year-old Noel, and you had two minutes of his time, what would you say to him? Go easy, big lad. Go easy. Uh, the the people pleaser you don't need to be that not everybody in this world is going to like you just live with that just take things easier don't be so hard on yourself I, I think that would if, if if it was a short sharp statement mm. that would probably be it go easy big lad mm-hmm. awesome no thank you so much for your time and for everything you shared absolutely loved that and uh, really appreciate you being here no problem, Matt. Thank you so much for inviting me. If, if anybody's any issues, you know, the, hopefully my contact details will be on mm-hmm. on the, the website. So get in contact. Don't suffer alone. Brilliant. Brilliant place to end. Amazing stuff. Look, as Noel was saying, if you are interested in reaching out, if you're interested in finding out more, uh, please do so. If you would like to go through me, you're more than happy to do so. My email is matthew at bestofbelfast.org. You can also go straight to Noel via his website. Uh, just Google East Antrim Counselling. Uh, you can also find it in the show notes of this episode or on our website. There's a wee link to it there. Uh, and whether it's with Noel, whether it's somebody else, whether it's just, do you know what, man, it's time just to call the GP and have that phone call where you say, look, 
I think I would like to get a little bit of help with my mental health. Now's the time. No better time for it. And if there's anything we can do to help you out on your way, uh, please just let us know. Please get in touch. We have another great episode dropping next Monday with a completely different style and flavor um, of content, of conversation, and of accent. Uh, I'll be honest with you, he's not even from Northern Ireland. Uh, He is a professor, he's a leading expert in um, depression. He's one of the most respected individuals in his field. He's delivered TED Talks, and he's someone whose work has dramatically turned the tide in my own personal battle with depression. Um, And look, you know me, like, don't mind chancing my arm. Uh, I don't like sending wee random emails just to see what comes off them. And uh, I've been able to develop this really um, lovely relationship uh, with this professor. Uh, And it looks like we are actually going to end up doing some stuff together, some podcasts uh, to reach a larger audience. But because Northern Ireland has my heart and will always have my heart, I wanted to bring it to you first and also wanted to bring it to you now at this specific time of the year. So you've that to look forward to next week. Um, If that sounds like it's up your street, I really, really am so excited to share that one with you. Uh, Have a good one until then. And uh, yeah, bestofbelfast.org. You can find everything you need. And I appreciate you listening. Cheers. Hi guys, I'm Rob and I'm from Queensland and I'm a proud member of the Best of Belfast Producers Club. I listen to the podcast for a number of reasons. I love Belfast, Northern Ireland and the country and the people in it. I have a connection with Northern Ireland as our family came to Australia in the 1800s from the beautiful county of Fermanagh. I love what's going on in Belfast, the entrepreneurs, the innovation, the technology and the spirit. My favourite podcast is definitely the Tim Brundle episode, although I do have many other favourites. I support the podcast financially because I believe that quality work deserves fair financial support. It's important that we continue to hear about the amazing people of Northern Ireland and what they are achieving. So if you've been sitting on the fence about joining the Producers Club and you would really miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, as I would, I highly recommend considering joining today. You can do so over at bestofbelfast.org. And I look forward to seeing you in the WhatsApp group soon.